0: balancing act for him to walk you know meeting with president biden meeting with president Xi, trying to figure out a a kind of way to walk that (laughs) to walk that tightrope i think it will be uh you know challenging his diplomatic skills in ways that we've never seen before so it should be interesting
1: okay william thank you very much indeed good to talk to you that's william pesic tokyo-based journalist and author you're listening to money talk on rthk radio three And around the Asia-Pacific markets in Tokyo, first of all, the uh, the Nikkei 225 still flat, the ASX 200 in Australia down 0.1%, the Cosby also flat, looks like maybe a very small gain for the Hang Seng at the open of about 30 points. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock with Money Talk, coming up after the news is Back Chats with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, sunny periods during the day, the maximum temperature is going to be around 27 degrees. The outlook, mainly cloudy, with one or two rain patches tomorrow and on Thursday, and then sunny intervals in the following few days. Temperature right now, 24 degrees, 81% relative humidity. Times 8.31, here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news.
0: President Xi Jinping has concluded his first face-to-face meeting with Joe Biden since the US leader took office. The pair spoke for more than three hours on the Indonesian island of Bali, ahead of the G20 summit. Mike Weeks has the details.
1: Following the meeting, the foreign ministry said Mr. C had told his U.S. counterpart that the world was big enough for their two countries to prosper and that they shared more, not less, interests. State media reported that Mr. C stressed that the Taiwan question is at the very core of China's interests, is the bedrock of the political foundation of Sino-U.S. relations and is the first red line that must not be crossed. The president also told his U.S. counterpart that the so-called democracy versus authoritarianism narrative is not the defining feature of today's world. Mr. Xi said freedom, democracy and
0: human rights are the common pursuit of humanity. A professor of politics has welcomed direct talks between President Xi and Biden, but says there were no changes to the usual talking points. Yosef Gregory Mahoney from East China Normal University in Shanghai said that while the meeting was cordial, at times the two leaders appeared to be talking past each other towards their domestic audiences. He also said there were no indications that tensions over Taiwan would be dialed back positive development because they can really take stock of each other but that said we still again see the same talking points and the biggest talking point here that is really sort of compelling is again this statement from biden that this kind of meeting is the key tool for managing the relationship responsibly and i think what you hear from the chinese side is that no what's really managing the relationship responsibly is the one china policy as the bedrock and the three joint communicates and as long as you're undermining these things then you know we're going to have problems. The police say their organised crime and triad bureau is investigating the case of an incorrect song being played instead of the national anthem at a rugby tournament in South Korea on Sunday. The force says it would look at potential violations of the national anthem ordinance or other legislation, including the national security law. Organiser Asia Rugby has apologised and blamed human error, but Chief Executive John Lee said the case was unacceptable because the anthem is a solemn matter and officials must follow it up seriously. He was asked how the police would investigate something that happened outside the SAR. Hong Kong police will act in accordance with the law for any investigation. We will see what evidence we collect during the probe and act accordingly. And finally, South Korea says North Korean officials have not responded to their request to retrieve the body of a woman, presumed to be North Korean, who was found dead in July. Officials in Seoul said the woman was found near the border, separating the two Koreas. She was wearing a badge showing the portraits of North Korea's late founder, Kim Il-sung, and former leader, Kim Jong-il. There'll be more news on the hour from RTHK.
1: Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada.
2: Good morning, Jim.
1: On today's programme, we're talking about uh, post-COVID-19 conditions, with an ongoing study finding that more than 2 million residents in the territory may have experienced uh, symptoms of what's referred to as long covid According to the Chinese University, about 70% of almost 7,000 interviewees said they'd had at least one persistent symptom, including depression, poor memory and hair loss. Researchers are urging authorities to establish designated clinics to provide early treatment for those with such conditions. Meanwhile, the Baptist University has also launched a Chinese medicine rehabilitation program to help uh, people who suffer from after effects of COVID-19. After 9.15 this morning, we'll be hearing more about the Yao train derailment incident on Sunday. You can let us know what you think about either of these topics. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, BackChat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at RTHK.hk or give us a call on two double three double eight two double six. That's two double three double eight two double six. And with us uh, for the first part of our main topic this morning, we have uh, Dr Judith Mackay, Honorary Professor with uh, Hong Kong University's uh, School of Public Health, and also on the line, Sue Ng, Director of the uh, Microbiota Ice Centre and a professor at the Department of Medicine and Therapeutics, that's at the Faculty of Medicine at the Chinese University. Um, good morning to you both. Um, perhaps, uh, uh, Professor Ong, uh, if we could uh, come to you first. Um, so we've been living with COVID-19 and indeed uh, long COVID for, what, uh, three years now, almost. Um, what are you finding that's new? What's, what, what's the result of your latest research? Um, are you able to cast any new light on this condition?
3: Good morning, Jim. Thank you for having me. So we are talking about long COVID, also known as post-acute COVID syndrome. And I think this is really one of the big issues and challenges that we in Hong Kong and probably globally are facing. So um, this essentially means that after recovery from COVID, after four weeks or so, a proportion of people continue to develop very debilitating, persistent symptoms. So recently uh, we did a territory-wide survey of more than 8,000 people and we were quite shocked to find that over 90% reported they have at least one long COVID symptoms after they had the acute infection. And up to now only 20% have recovered. So that essentially means that there's still another 70%. Who have persistent symptoms and some of the top persistent symptoms that really lingers on in these people really can affect their work and their schools and children for example uh, the top ones are poor memory and poor concentration also known as brain fog some people may get mood disturbances with depression and skin conditions such as hair loss so these are quite um, worrying i mean for us Because the exact cause of why some people continue to get long COVID is not completely known. But about six months ago, our group has looked into what we call the gut microbiome of these patients, the long COVID. Mm -hmm. And we found that the microbiome, which is the good bacteria in our gut, are missing, which means that they can't control our immune system in a good way and it can predict who may or may not get long COVID. So this is one clue whereby we may be able to boost certain good bacteria in the human gut to reduce the long COVID symptoms. Of course, the second approach would be vaccination. It's also important to reduce long COVID symptoms. I think we need a very multidisciplinary and holistic approach to try to prevent long COVID in those who may get it and also to treat long COVID. At least now we don't have a cure.
1: It is a very high percentage, isn't it? 70% of people are reporting at least one persistent symptom. Um, Presumably, then, given the the vaccination rate among the population, most of those people uh, will have been pretty much fully vaccinated.
3: Absolutely. So, as mentioned before, vaccination has been shown to reduce uh, or reduce the proportion of people with long COVID. So, for example, if you had, you know, one vaccination, maybe 42% 42% may get. If you had two doses, it may be down to 30%, but this rate is never 0%. So that means that even with vaccination, it may reduce, but there's still a proportion who may be more elderly, the females, those at high risk with comorbidities, certainly still have um, some long COVID symptoms. I think one of the issues is how this affects the society because we see in our survey that more than 50% reports that it affects their work So going to the employment and not being in the state of mind, having poor memory, certainly, and children about ten to twenty percent may have long COVID symptoms, and they may miss school because of that. So we are trying to roll out certain things for prevention. So, for example, UHK developed a microbiome immunity formula a year ago, and we did a clinical trial, and the initial data showed something simple as in replenishing the good bacteria in the human gut may have. Some hope in reducing the long COVID symptoms, or at least reducing to a certain extent
2: where it does not affect the quality of life. Um Dr. Ng, so many people are having long COVID. Do you think that um their symptoms, you know, really varied, and you know, is a varying degree of seriousness? Uh, for for example, uh, if I have had the flu, uh, there will be a few weeks after I had the flu that I will feel uh, exhausted, uh, you know, fatigue. And also, you know, it's just not my good old self. um, Or is this really much worse um, than the aftermath of flu? Uh,
3: That's right. So we see in our clinical study that a proportion of patients may recover over time. So those who had COVID may feel uh, poorly of fatigue or extreme tiredness, the shortness of breath and, for example, poor memory for a few months. But then it will recover over time. But there's also a proportion of people, which I think this is the group you're more worried about. This can actually persist for more than a year. So, for example, the symptoms that persist for a longer period of time are the cognitive dysfunction. So the brain function of not being able to focus or concentrate, depression, and poor sleep, and in the you know, having insomnia, and also hair loss, skin conditions. So I I think these are the ones that we see that have not recovered. And that's uh, about 20% of people. So imagine if 1.5 million people have had COVID, which is 20% of the population. It's still going to affect quite a substantial number of people with long-term symptoms
4: over time.
1: Well, let's bring in uh, Dr. Judith Mackay. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, Honorary Professor with uh, Hong Kong U's uh, School of Public Health. Obviously, uh, all of the uh, top uh, medical institutions are are looking into uh, this condition. Um, And uh, thank you for coming back onto the programme, by the way. We were speaking to you last week about uh, COVID, about uh, tobacco control. Um, uh, Obviously, this morning's topic is long COVID. Um, And I believe you yourself have had some uh, personal experience with long COVID.
4: Well, not have had, I actually have. And I'm now in my fourth month um, since I caught COVID in Scotland, in fact, um, in August, in spite of four of the BioNTech vaccines. Um, This is against the background of my playing 18 holes of golf twice a week, doing daily Tai Chi and working full time, I might say. Mm. And um, I've been really quite affected by it. I've got a cough, shortness of breath, tightness in my chest. I've got extreme fatigue and muscle weakness and some tenderness and fleeting headache and nausea. So everybody has, um, as Professor Hugh was saying, a different range of symptoms. But um, I've been quite astonished. I didn't expect this because I've been so healthy my entire life, 55 years in Hong Kong, and I didn't have an HA number, hospital authority number, mm-hmm. which astonished the hospital authority. And I said, well, oh, yeah, I've never been in hospital. I'm a really well person. And I think the interesting thing, I would, the two things I would just like to say is that eight members of my family on my mother's side have all had long COVID and done, some done much worse than I have with it. So that genetic influence is certainly there. You can't do much about this. But the interesting thing is I've been saying for about six weeks that I was short of breath. And then my chest X-ray was normal. But then the chest um, physician in Queen Elizabeth Hospital asked for a lung scan. And my lung scan was horrible. I've got parts of my lung have collapsed. I've got scarring. I've got multiple inflammatory nodules and lymph nodes. And the interesting thing is that although I was telling people, look, you know, I think I've, I've certainly got long COVID and I'm not well, somehow having that lung scan gave authenticity to this. Everybody started, oh, well, you know, now you've got physical proof of this and I think the lesson to me is that we actually have to listen more to patients because as I said I've been saying it for about five or six weeks now to people that I wasn't you know I wasn't well and that I had shortness of breath but somehow that lung scan that evidence in a sense that sort of scientific evidence made everybody much more focused and much more sympathetic towards me. So, and the other thing just to say is that I have enrolled in the Chinese University study right. and discovered that there is a COVID recovery clinic in the private hospital at Chinese University, the medical mm. center. Um, but the other thing is how difficult it is in Hong Kong to find out any information about what you should do and where you should go. Mm.
2: Um, so, um, uh, Dr. McKay, uh, the um, you know the the symptoms um, did it really affect your work and um, did you yes. have to stay home mm-hmm. and rest and uh, what what was it like?
4: Well, um, it certainly affected my working ability because what I couldn't do is get my energy level up to tackle a task. It was that's probably the, one of the biggest effects of it. I don't seem to have had quite a lot of the symptoms that Professor Professor Sue mentioned. Fortunately, I don't think I've got the brain fog that so many do, but I just was so fatigued. I just, to, you know, write a paper, write an article for the newspaper or things like that. I just couldn't get my energy level up to do that. And I, that's something I can do now after, you know, in my fourth month. I can do that now. But. What happens is after I've done it, I'm just exhausted. I might have to go to sleep in the middle of the day still. You know, people looking at Mm. me or listening to me today would probably think I sound quite normal. But the difference now is that I just am so fatigued with even quite a small task. And if I try to push through that, if I try to do more exercise, for example, um, yeah, that certainly makes it worse. So far from playing 18 holes, of course, if I get onto mm. the first tee, I think I'm lucky at the moment. Wow. <laughs> well, do
1: you have any indication of, of how long it may last or how long it may be before you make a, you know, a full recovery?
4: No, nobody knows the answer mm. to that. And as Professor Stu said, I mean, it might be, that I'm slowly going to get better. But it might be that I'm going to be like this the rest of my life. Nobody actually knows the answers to that. But I myself had to suss out what to do. So luckily, with the help of people from the Department of Health and the Hong Kong College of Physicians, um, you know, I went to see a lung specialist in Queen Mary. I found the COVID recovery clinic in Chinese University. And the third thing I've done is to go to traditional Chinese medicine and uh, and take that and also acupuncture as well as resuming very gently my tai chi classes just this week and um, you know just hoping that this broad approach to try and boost my immune system but the thing is people think this long covid is either due to antiviral fragments remaining autoimmunity or these tiny blood clots and coagulation so experts range from advocating antivirals for the viral remnants suppressing or boosting the immune system and anticoagulation and I just don't feel I have a conductor of my orchestra I'm having to try and find out all these things myself to decide what kind of treatment I really need and so if I as a you know senior long-term physician in Hong Kong have this difficulty. I can imagine how difficult it is for the average person Mm. to try and firstly be believed and then secondly to try and find out the best course of treatment. There doesn't seem to be coordinating mechanisms yet in Hong Kong to focus on what will be the, the residue. This will be the residue of COVID, that there will be, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people like me and not quite knowing what to do.
1: Uh, email here from a listener, Alonso, uh, on that uh, very matter actually said, so, um, according to my medical contacts, there's been a noticeable and worrying rise in blood clots in people who recently had COVID. Indeed, if you Google this subject, you'll find a number of medical experts raising this issue. Any thoughts from your panel? Um, uh, Su Ng, um, th- th- how much are blood clots related to the condition of long COVID?
3: I think um, I just want to echo what Judith said, Professor Michael. It is such a prime example. Thank you for sharing your story, because this is exactly the story we've heard from young people who just have extreme fatigue and just can't get about at all. I think um, there are many theories for what sort of, um, may be the potential cause behind. And I think it may be a very sort of heterogeneous mechanism for some people. So, for example, with a small proportion of people, there may be an uh, inflammation, that is ongoing in the in the whole system that may range from the lungs, the blood vessels, even to the gut. So a small proportion of people have reported uh, that. But I think ultimately one of the key features that controls this inflammation, you have a pro clotting uh, susceptibility when you have systemic inflammation that you are not aware of. And we found certainly that when we tested gut bacteria these people, we find that the have bad bacteria that release a lot of pro-inflammation markers that may go to your bloodstream. So I think what we need to do is get to the bottom and then we can take it in a personalized manner for each and every person. So what our um, um, would said is really we need a personalized approach. We need education. We need COVID recovery one-stop. Whereby it gives you a holistic review. So in the CNHK Medical Center, for example, the test to check what the gut microbiome profile is, whether this makes whether a patient needs physiotherapy, therapy, whether this patient then needs a lung specialist for more rehabilitation or even a psychologist. And we need to promote this actually in Hong Kong now because I know that in the United States, in uh, the NHS in UK, there are lots of resources being channeled in to really help people with uh, long COVID to recover. We don't really know when they will recover, but I think we need to at least prevent or reduce this. So we are conducting clinical trials of testing different types of microbiome type formula. I know traditional Chinese medicine is one of them, and of course, you know, other types of more um, holistic approach. So this would, I believe, be, be the future until we really understand the whole mechanism behind long COVID.
2: Yeah, um, Dr. Ng, you mentioned the prevention. Now, um, how would... um you know, how would anybody prevent long COVID? Um, you know, with taking certain supplements or even probiotics would that help at all? Uh,
3: so about, I mean, six months ago, we did a pilot study and we looked at patients who have just recovered from COVID and half of them received the DHK microbiome immunity formula and another half just had standard therapies, just the usual stuff. And we found that 96% of those who... Boost the good bacteria in the gut, at least before they developed long COVID, did not have any symptoms of long COVID, whereas close to 70% of those who did not at least one persistent symptom. So this is quite encouraging for us and promising. So right now we've just completed uh, sort of 600 people randomized controlled trial. So I think this is about prevention. It is, in the first four weeks, you feel poorly because of the acute infection. But after that, what you can do in terms of diet, in terms of lifestyle, in terms of you know boosting the good bacteria in, in your gut, something non-invasive that can actually maybe reduce, even if it does not eliminate completely,
4: If I could just perhaps perhaps add here, there are, at the moment about 30 um, trials around the world, you know, really serious trials going on looking at it. I think the last three years, much energy has been spent, of course, on acute COVID and on the vaccine and on acute treatment and just trying to follow the path of this vaccine. Enormous energy has gone into that. And with long COVID, most of the last two years has been devoted to defining it, to identifying it defining it, trying to work out the symptoms from it and so on. I think there has been a delay in actually looking for treatment. But at the moment, there are now about 27 clinical trials around the world going on, looking at all sorts of different drugs um, to see um, treatments as to see what might help COVID. Some of the results of those should be ready within the next several months but uh, it's all a little bit late for me. I wish I'd known about microbiomes before I actually um, sort of co- got long COVID or taken it much earlier. So, you know, everything is, uh, information is accumulating. And I think in the future, as Dr. you say, we'll have a much better idea, better identification of the patients, and a much better idea as to how to actually treat treat people because the the microbiome seems to be very good if you give them before the vaccine for example or give them early what we're still not 100% sure of is how effective they will be in treating people who've already got it Mm. I think uh, that clarity would be helpful as well I'm certainly taking them and I would advise everybody to do so
1: Uh, and what other treatments are you undertaking at the moment?
4: Well, I'm also, as I mentioned, going to, tr- to traditional Chinese medicine, right. because the philosophy of that is that it boosts your immune system. So I'm doing that, and also I've just started adding to that some acupuncture, because although at the end of the day I may never know, it's very bad medicine in a sense, bad, bad um, scientific medicine, and will never know whether it's the um, microbiome readjustment or whether it's the traditional Chinese medicine or whether it's by going to QEH um, to see the lung specialist. But, you know, I was really so poorly with it. I just felt I had to throw everything I knew that might help me in some way. And I have I never was much of a drinker, but I have completely stopped taking alcohol, totally, because alcohol depresses your immunity. And mm-hmm. what I need at this very moment is, a, is pretty good immunity to try and get over this. Mm-hmm.
2: But as far as Western medicine is concerned, um, the, uh, your doctors have not uh, prescribed any medication to, um, uh, to ease your conditions.
4: Yes, the doctor at Queen Elizabeth Hospital, the specialist there, has prescribed an inhaler that's a combination of a sort of Ventolin type inhaler but with steroids in the hope that that might actually improve my lung function. Mm. So I'm certainly not as ill as many people. I have a cousin, for example. I was telling you this very dramatic sort of family line that we have. I have a cousin in the UK who has become sort of bedridden and unable to stand up. He has to go out in a wheelchair. I mean, he's in a much worse shape than I am. So, I mean, I'm certainly not as bad as many people who do get it. But um, at the same time, it's, it's, been, it's had a major effect upon my life. And certainly now, as I said, I think... I dare to think that slowly but surely I'm not as unwell as I was, say, a month ago. Mm. So I'm just, um, I'm just really hoping that, that as Dr. Hugh says, that for most people with my symptoms, that this, is, um, this will last a few
1: months. Mm. Uh, Hugh, you were saying before that uh, diet could be a factor in uh, uh, making sure you have a, a, a good level of, uh, of good bacteria. In your guts, um, can you what 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 sort of diet would you be recommending?
3: Uh, Totally. So I think that what um, Dr. Madagascar is timing is really important. Because what we want to do now is prevent, like, what the symptoms that, you know, was described by myself and the family. So what we need to do is now to boost the immunity of people. So there are a few ways to boost the good bacteria in the gut. Because each one of us has 40 trillion bacteria, and majority of them orchestrate our whole immune system. We just can't see them, but they're there. So there are a few things. Simple things are diet. So, for example, certain diets that may be more healthy, you know, less, you know, weight-made, less carbohydrate, less. Bad, more fibre to bring out the good bacteria, certain so prebiotics, simple stuff like fermented food and yoghurt. But however, having said that, most people are already doing that, but it's still not sufficient. So, which is why when we develop this micro formula, it's a type that actually helps to colonise the bacteria in your gut to a higher level. It may need to be 10 times higher because you're being acutely sick. You may have antibiotics when you had COVID. You may be in the hospital. All those things wipe out the good bacteria in your Now try to protect by giving people very high dose.
2: On the dissemination of this very valuable information. Do you think the government uh, should do more, or is the Department of Health taking the lead?
3: Uh, I believe uh, to actually be doing this, like what Audrey like McGough said, everyone is now looking. this is not people making up, not wanting to go to work. And then we need a proper assessment by the mild symptoms as a general practitioner. And then I think for the more severe one, where we need specialist care, we probably need a more um, 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 coordinated and ease and convenient way of people being going to a one-stop clinic. So the COHK Medical Centre is one, but we probably need more of these. whereby people can just go there and they have
1: Thank you very much for speaking to us uh, on the programme this morning. That was uh, Xiu Eng, director of the Microbiota Eye Centre and professor at the Department of Medicine and Therapeutics at the Chinese University. Um, uh, Judith Mackay, please stay with us. We're going to take a short break for the news summary. We'll be back at three minutes past the uh, quick look at the weather. It's 24 degrees at the moment, humidity 81%. Since we collect during the probe,
0: and accordingly. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
1: And welcome back to Backchat with Ada Wong and me, Jim Gould. And this morning, until around about uh, quarter past nine... Uh, we're going to continue our discussion on our main topic, and that is the condition known as uh, long COVID. Uh, we have uh, with us uh, Dr. Judith Mackay, who's the Honorary Professor with Hong Kong University's School of Public Health. And joining us now also on the line is uh, Dr. Vivian Wong-Tam, who's an Honorary Professor at uh, Hong Kong University School of Chinese Medicine and also Honorary President of the Hong Kong Association for Integration of Chinese and Western Medicine, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Vivian Wong Tam. Good morning to you. Hello. Hello. Good, good morning. Evening. Thanks for thanks very much for joining us. You're um, welcome. Uh, okay, uh, well, uh, as you know, we still have uh, Judith Mackay with us, who is explaining to us before the break that she's actually been taking uh, traditional Chinese medicine to, to deal with a, a long COVID condition. Um, you're in an interesting position uh, with your association for the integration of Chinese and Western medicine. Um, how are you uh, advising patients, and what, what, what do you think people should do uh, with long COVID? How are they going to... What's the best way for the condition to be tackled?
3: Right, uh- Yes, I understand that a lot of people are actually not sure what to do. And uh, actually, with my background, actually is in Western medicine. So I look at the uh, whole process from the acute infection to uh, the rehabilitation uh, in the same manner. All right, so we, we actually have to look at the pathophysiology from Western medicine viewpoint uh, and then find out why there is this prolonged complication. So the basic thing is there is what is known as microvascular thrombosis, and that is uh, clotting of the small vessels due to some immunological changes, and mm-hmm. also due to inflammation of the um, inner layer, the endothelium of the, of the vessels. So this would affect actually any part of the body, and that is why the complications, long-term complications, actually may cover uh, different parts or different organs of the body. All right? so, so therefore, with that as the background, then we look at Chinese medicine and then discover, indeed, uh, actually during the acute phase, there are many Chinese herbs that are um, specifically antithrombotic, immunomodulating, anti-inflammatory, and more importantly, antioxidation. So that that is the oxidative stress that would give damage to the um, the tissues. And there is one thing that is called um, uh, um, ischemic reperfusion injury. That is to say, when you have lo- ischemia means uh, lack of oxygen, actual blood. So when when something is blocked, um, you, you would have some damages, and then uh, the body would actually reproduce something to re- reperfuse the bo- uh, that part that is injured. But by doing so, you have these uh, oxidative uh, uh, problems that would pro- actually uh, produce the injury. So, so that is why uh, we have to work together, um, Chinese medicine and Western medicine, in order to, to treat this and, and to, first of all, to prevent it. And if it is already there, then we could try to resolve it
2: yeah um, and good morning, uh, uh, good morning Dr. Vim Wong. It seems that um, uh, you know for the treatment of long covid um, uh, people are turning to Chinese medicine and um, as Dr. Judith Mackay said before the news uh, she 's taking Chinese medicine also acupuncture how, um, how um, you know how are the doctors doing, and do you know that um, uh, they are now uh, integrating well and collaborating well. You know what sort of um, hurdles uh, do you see? Uh, you know, in the integration of Western and Chinese medicine, in particular, in the treatment of long COVID, which uh, we believe uh, millions of people might be suffering from.
3: Right, that that indeed is, is the major problem, that uh, we are not working to the, together very well, even in Hong Kong. And that is some of the things that I've been pushing, you know, for the past six months or so, uh, because I know that it would help the, our patients. There's so, there are so many of them suffering from these symptoms. So uh, the, the main thing is, uh, you talk about two things. One is acupuncture. Maybe that is easier. Uh, I think most Western doctors, uh, would uh, trust acupuncture, and uh, they could uh, uh, easily accept that because there are loads of uh, scientific evidence to show it. And you see, with uh, long COVID, there is one uh, very important point: is about the autonomic nervous system. So it would uh, produce like sudden rises and falls in blood pressure or or the pulse and uh, dizziness and things like that, uh, which uh, some people think, oh, this is just psychological, but it's not. And so how do we actually treat the autonomic nervous system, like the vagus nerve? So these are very well documented. You can use acupuncture to do that. So so this is one thing I, th- I hope, uh, you know, uh, th- people listening uh, could actually, uh, if you have those symptoms, uh, go to seek help uh, uh, for acupuncture. Mm-hmm. Now, the other part is the herbs. So, so according to Chinese medicine, um, they, they use the um, traditional method of um, syndromic diagnosis. So they have Chinese medicine syndromes. Uh, in each patient so depending on which part of the body is affected then they, they would actually prescribe different um, uh, uh, formally and uh, in fact uh, if you recall um, the, the Chinese experts came to Hong Kong in the spring mm. and uh, they actually left with uh, a guideline on how to do the rehabilitation and they've got everything written down Different types of syndromes. You give um, different herbal combinations. So, if people are interested, you could just download that and go to your doctor and said which one fits me, and uh, we could uh, actually uh, uh, try to use those as well.
1: Mm. So, Judith MacKay, do you feel that there's a a lot of potential for a a combination of treatments in you know dealing with long COVID? Mm -hmm. Judith MacKay, Mm -hmm. hi.
4: Still with us? Hello. Yes, sir. I've never taken traditional Chinese medicine before, Mm. so I mean, this is something quite new to me. But I think I was at the point of really um, being—I'm sorry to put it quite so. Boldly, but really almost willing to try anything mm. to try and start feeling better. But I think I think it has it has helped. Of course, there's no quick fix for this. It's rather like smoking. There's no quick fix for the tobacco problem. There's no quick fix for this COVID. And I think any improvement is really measured over months, and if um, if not longer. But um, you know, I'm really hopeful that I'm covering my bases, so to speak, by having some Western medicine, um, some um, uh, of the microbiomes that we were hearing about earlier i'm taking billions of these microbiomes from my gut every day and then also trying traditional chinese medicine and acupuncture and i feel that in a sense i'm covering my bases by really trying to combine all these methods into my recovery Mm.
1: and like you say trying to boost your immune system by not having alcohol for instance
4: absolutely Mm. yes Mm. yes i mean we we've known that for a very long time alcohol depresses the immune system and is in fact, it's even therefore linked with the development of cancer. So alcohol and COVID are, are not uh, not compatible. Mm.
3: Mm. All right, maybe Jim, uh, it would be useful. You just mentioned about uh, the gut microbiome. Yeah. There is quite a lot of evidence on the um, effect of uh, a couple of Chinese medicine that could actually um, change the gut microbiome. And uh, research has been conducted on the irritable bowel syndrome and conditions like that and uh, in Chinese is actually pei wai which is the the Chinese term for spleen and stomach and in fact that is that like the gastrointestinal tract and so it was seized um, formally for the for the spleen and uh, uh, um, stomach Uh, actually it helps in uh, changing the uh, gut microbiota to uh, to the, um,
4: you know, the right format. Yes, I would just add, you don't have to have any symptoms from your gut at all to actually um, try the microbiome mm. for COVID. You don't have to have any right. n- nausea or vomiting or diarrhea at all. No. Um, I mean, most of my symptoms are within my lungs and my sort of muscles. And in fact, we, we, Vivian, we sort of covered this in the first part of the program when we had uh, Dr. Stu from Chinese University talking for the first half hour very comprehensively about the gut microbiomes and I think that's another thing we're just discovering in medicine all the time how important the gut microbiomes are for our general health I mean it's been linked with many things not just bowel illness but things like mental health in particular so I mean we're on still on a very steep learning curve in terms of any kind of medicine Westerners particularly right mental health
3: is very uh, very very important to this in fact uh, the Polytechnic University Uh, actually has started, um, uh, you know, a series of three uh, research programs, uh, you know, their Department of Rehabilitation. So they are looking at mental health, looking at, um, you know, using uh, Qigong and, uh, you know, uh, mindfulness, that type of um, therapy for for, uh, long COVID as well.
1: Okay. I have another message here from a a listener. This is actually a question for... uh, Dr. Vivian Wong says uh, uh, your guest on after 9pm uh, mentioned Chinese medicines which can help reduce clotting risk. Uh, can she please give specific examples of, uh, of medicines and or a website I can refer to. Thank you.
3: Okay, so it's not so simple uh, as just going to a website or telling you which formula to take. You really have to go to uh, see your uh, Chinese medicine doctor before you can do that. But this is well known, all right. Uh, you know, if you uh, see a lot of the over-the-counter drugs that actually helps you to prevent uh, stroke, prevent heart diseases, uh, heart, you know, heart ischemia. So those are the ones that are well known, well documented with loads of preclinical data on anti- thrombosis. That is sort of one of the strongest points. And one thing that uh, perhaps uh, people would have heard of is the, the term An-Gung uh, Okay, so this an thing is actually from Beijing and is being sold uh, over the counter for prevention of uh, uh, heart attack. And, and so, but, but then um, the problem is um, the one that is registered in Hong Kong is not the, the classic one that is used for treatment. So, so you, therefore, that is why I said you cannot just go and buy something and, and take it yourself. You really have to consult, um, you know, a, a specialist in order to be able to do that. But, but it is actually well known that uh, uh, from our pharmacological viewpoint
4: that these um, activities do exist and they work very well. Um, I think the problem is that many listeners wouldn't have a clue about going along to a Chinese traditional herbal shop and knowing basically what to ask for and what kind of medicine. No, they can't. I think that that would be dangerous. (laughs) Okay, so
2: my, yeah, my, my question is, uh, you know, there are hospital authority run Chinese medicine clinics and also there are NGOs who run clinics. Um, just want to ask Dr. Vivian Wong, you know, how informed are they about all these rehabilitation services for long COVID patients and, um, uh, and, and you know, are they all in sync? <laughs> yes,
3: yes, because you see the good thing is the, 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 the guidelines that were set up by the um, central China experts. Um, you know so everyone is in that and the, the problem with um, the public services by the hospital authority um, is that uh, they, the numbers are limited and we have many patients needing the treatment so that is why they have to go to private and so in fact uh, we've been holding seminars and so forth uh, with the um, Chinese medicine community so all of them are in sync so, so therefore, if you go to, um, you know, a reputable uh, chain uh, or, you know, a physician uh, in Chinese medicine, uh, it is definitely okay uh, because uh, they, they, they would follow the um, guidelines simply. simply and,
2: and, yeah, and we have enough um, Chinese medicine doctors.
3: Uh, I mean, not not the ones that, like um, you know, who doesn't uh, read up, you know, the, the ones like behind the, the, the herbal shop the, uh, the old one with a beard, so, so those may not know what 's happening, but if you go to the young ones, you know they they, they are all well up to date you know we, we have webs, uh, you know whatsapp groups discussing this all the time, so, yeah. so they, they know it very well
2: yeah i 'm just thinking that we have millions of um, patients uh, you know for for long COVID and similar treatments. Uh, do we have enough clinics uh, for this uh, under uh, that, HA? That
3: is the main thing. You know, mm-hmm. you hit the nail it on, on the head. Uh, I've been lobbying for the past four months for the government to organize multidisciplinary long COVID groups. In the NHS, <coughs> excuse me, in the NHS, when they first started, they have 40 these um, long COVID clinics. But after three months, they added 40 more. So now they have 80 long COVID clinics. So when you have that as a proportion of the population, Hong Kong should have about like 10 at least. You know? So I've been advocating, why don't we have one in each district? Why don't we actually have it in the, in the district health centers? So, so that you could have a um, partnership of Western and Chinese medicine doctors to, to manage the patients if and when necessary.
1: Okay. All right. Well, thank you uh, very much to uh, both of our guests uh, this morning. Um, That, uh, as you were just hearing, was uh, Dr. Vivian Wong Tam, who's Honorary Professor at Hong Kong University School of Chinese Medicine and the Honorary President of the Hong Kong Association for Integration of Chinese and Western Medicine. And we also heard from Dr. Judith Mackay, who's an Honorary Professor with uh, Hong Kong University's uh, School of Public Health. And before nine o'clock, uh, Siu ung Director of the Microbiota Eye Center and Professor at the Department of Medicine and Therapeutics. At the Chinese University. Uh, thank you uh, to all three of you. And for the last uh, 10 minutes or so of this morning's programme, we're turning our attention to our second topic, and that was um, the accident, um, the partial derailment of a train on uh, Sunday morning at Yaomate Station. Uh, the government uh, said it expects the MTR Corporation to submit an initial report on the incident by tomorrow. A full report uh, within two months. Uh, There are quite a few uh, talking points, obviously, surrounding what happened. Uh, It affects uh, all of us. Millions of people use the MTR every day. Um, We have uh, with us uh, on the line now uh, Michael Teen, a member of LegCo's uh, Railways Subcommittee and a former chairman of the kowloon Canton Railway Corporation. Uh, Good morning to you.
5: Good morning. From uh, Chinese medicine to railway railmen. Uh, that's
1: right. Yes, quite a quite a switch of uh, topics. <laughs> <a> but, switch. <laughs> but there, there we are. Indeed, this this one probably could have made a, a main topic for the program as well. But um, yeah, please go ahead. Yes. Uh, so. Uh, let's see. So, um, we were hearing this morning the possibility that, uh, obviously, people are trying to work out what caused the accident. Um, um, there's talk about uh, a component falling off uh, a gate uh, next to the platform. Uh, the latest uh, is the possibility yeah. that uh, the cover of, uh, of a cooling fan you, for the tunnel fell time. down. So, what if, do you... If
5: what you, do you don't what mind, do you? I yeah, could go ahead. Some yeah. sort of direct uh, discussion to three main areas. Okay. One is... What caused the derailment, okay? That, that's a separate issue. It happens every now and then, from time to time, everywhere along the system. The second one is the evacuation procedure, because you see people walking along the tunnel when there are trains on the opposite side. Uh, that seems to not be uh, what they had planned. Mm-hmm. And the third area is my main concern, which is in the history of MDR they have never had carriage doors being ripped off in the entire history of MTR, and then all of a sudden we have two in the last eleven months, mm. and they all involve these so-called M trains that were bought last century. Uh, first of first of those came into service in nineteen seventy-nine, so it's over forty somewhat years. This particular one, however, is only twenty-seven years. It came in in nineteen ninety-five, so. Uh, The point is uh, supposedly the design of the carriage doors is such that even if you're a major accident, the doors is a large stronghold. It shouldn't be ripped off that easy. My main concern is what caused carriage doors to be ripped off so easily and it all of a sudden happened in the last 11 months and it applies to the same set of M trains. Is this something to do with the design of the carriage doors of the M-train in terms of the guide rail that once you go past 20, 30 years, somehow there's a bit of a metal fatigue and whatnot? So last year, I had written to the CE asking for a full investigation of the, uh, sub, uh, the material and the uh, metal fatigue condition of all the guide rail in the M-train doors. Uh, but that would require using ultrasonic equipment, which means you have to stop the train, take the doors off, uh, you know, measure the, uh, the, 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 the strength of the metal and all that. And it is something that is obviously not very easy to do, so I guess they never did it. Mm. So now my question is not knowing when or whether the third uh, rip door will happen uh, in the near future, Why don't we change all these old trains, which they are supposed to be changed anyway, and replace them with the new trains, which has been bought in 2015, sitting in uh, the the factory in Qingdao. Mm. All right? And originally, it was meant to go with the new signaling system, which was meant to be delivered in 2019, and is now indefinitely delayed. So why don't we take the new train down and replace these M trains and use the current signaling system and run it until the new signaling system is ready. Now, the original plan is that if you can do it once, you don't want to do it twice. But I think that at this point, not knowing whether the the third set of carriage doors will be ripped off uh, in the near future and when, uh, I'd rather take that route.
2: So, so, Michael, you, you think that uh, these trains that have been with us uh, since the 19, late 1970s uh, should be uh, should be decommissioned? Should not be used anymore? And, so and we have bought uh, new trains. Were supposed to
5: be decommissioned anyway. They were supposed to be all replaced by these 93 sets of trains that was bought in 2015. But they were waiting for the new signaling system to go with a new train, so the inconvenience to Hong Kong commuter is only one time. To do what I'm suggesting, you have to inconvenience the public twice. Mm
2: -hmm. So those new trains have been sitting there for seven years uh, without um, any service?
5: Well, the first set was ready for in 2019. Some have been delivered to Hong Kong, and the rest is sitting in Qingtao. And I'm urging the government to take all the trains down, replace the old M train, unfortunately, with the current signaling system so that means when the new sitting system is ready, I don't know when, they have to do another six month test and then go through all that, uh, you know, a bit of a inconvenience. I think it's worthwhile doing because I don't trust these doors. Mm. If you're a commuter, would you trust these M train doors anymore? Twice in 11 months due to different reasons, right? One is because of derailment. I talked to the experts, they say even minor derailment, the door shouldn't be ripped off that easily. Mm. So is there a possibility that the guide rail in these doors are uh, actually uh, due to, I don't know, 20, 30 years, uh, you know, in terms of metal strength and all that, is uh, wearing out? Mm-hmm. Now, last year, it was a light box that ripped the uh, train door off. That is even more bizarre. Mm-hmm. I mean, the light boxes is designed not to be so easily ripping off a train door. A train door should be... Mm-hmm. <clears throat> sort of the last stronghold, right, mm. of the train.
1: Right. You might think the train door should be more robust than the light box as well.
2: So, yes.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
5: Uh, so yeah. a lot of these things you really can explain, but the, my biggest concern is it creates a kind of an uneasy an, an feeling for commuters in the future standing next to the door.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, sure. And, and on your second issue, uh, evacuation, evacuation procedures... Mm. Um, Mm. It is also very bizarre because, uh, as we read, um, about one-third of all the carriages are now uh, actually on the platform and um, most passengers uh, got off and uh, they were dispersed uh, quite safely, but um, 100-plus people had to walk in the tunnels.
5: That is something that I really find surprising with MTR today because I actually... uh, am quite in support of the current management i think it's full of seasoned veterans and they take everything very seriously you know how they respond to uh uh incidents uh, it's now much quicker right they had a press uh, uh, interview within an hour and then another one late in the evening so the culture is now you know quite different uh so having this kind of evacuation uh, procedures, which is definitely
1: not part of the protocol, uh, they really need to explain what went wrong. So, so you, okay, that was a mistake, you would say, uh, that's like those one of 50 be, people
5: have to walk uh, along the tunnel. It cannot be what's planned in the menu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right,
2: right. And it was so dangerous that, um, you know, the, the trains uh, are still running. And,
5: exactly. and they had
2: to walk to Mong Kok, which is mm. quite a distance uh, exactly. from Yamate. Exactly.
5: Exactly. So, so my in 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 terms of my memory, uh, I, I cannot recall a similar incident uh, in the past. Mm. They should at least have stopped the train right during that period. Mm. And how long would it be? Mm. How long would it take for 100, 100 uh, passengers to walk? Uh, I don't know how many meters to the nearby station. to stop all those trains running until they're mm. all clear. Mm.
1: Uh, do you know what's it like to walk in a railway tunnel and <laughs> do you have to like uh, dodge the you know dodge the railway sleepers or
5: i I, I honestly don't know yeah. uh, you may have to interview yes, those uh, yes. one of those hundred yeah. Yeah, you know sure. passengers sure. but yeah. uh, it is something that should not happen in Hong Kong today with the amount of investment mm-hmm. and actually the uh, uh, the, 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 the airport MTR being actually providing the best—I, in my opinion, the mm. still the best rail services in the world. Mm. And something like that is quite bizarre. Yeah,
2: yes. So we, we would probably never know. The, the derailment the real cause is of one of the... a
5: kind, you know. Mm. I don't know, they need to come up with uh, a full investigation to find out what caused the derailment. But my point is, train doors are supposed to be a large stronghold. I don't care if you derail the train, I don't know, whatever happened. Why hasn't it happened the last uh, since the history of MTR? Why you tell me? We've had yeah. incidents, yeah. we've had derailment, we've had everything, but the doors were always intact. Well, we we were lucky. We yeah. were
2: lucky that this happened on a Sunday, right?
5: Right. right. It, so so, so my as... concern is about
1: the train door. Mm. Mm. Uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll find out from the uh, investigation. But uh, uh, thank you uh, very much for speaking to us uh, on the programme. That was uh, Michael Teen, a member of LegCo's Railways Subcommittee and uh, a former chairman of the Kowloon Canton Railway Corporation. Uh, let's have a quick look at the weather uh, before we go to the brunch uh, with Noreen and the news summary. It's going to be uh, mainly cloudy today. Uh, sunny periods, uh, Top temperature around 27 degrees, um, moderate to fresh easterly winds. The outlook uh, mainly cloudy, with one or two rain patches tomorrow. And on Thursday, sunny intervals in the following few days. It's currently uh, 24 degrees, humidity 81%. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks very much to you, Ada. Thank you, Jim. And we'll see you next time. The village representative election and Kaifong representative election are approaching. Candidates, election helpers and voters should observe the law. It is an offence if any person offers advantages, food, drink or entertainment to induce votes for any particular candidate. Any person who accepts will also be guilty. Abide by the law. Support clean elections. ICAC Report Hotline 25266366. The
4: new summary with Barry O'Rourke.